It is, yes. Uh, I've heard it referred to as Silicon Beach, yeah. which I, I don't know if I like that. But Well, I can't wait till Silicon Beach gets too full and rents get too high and they start moving some of these businesses more. Oh, east. wait. Oh, wait. What? You don't think it's already too high? my house i don't recognize this place at all yeah you've been entrapped i've been i've been stuck in here this is actually not bad it's my office man there's a sofa in here there's a sofa you got all kinds of computer stuff you got cool posters yeah it's a pretty good spot yeah we're uh we're coming to you live from a different part of los angeles than we normally come to you from mm-hmm. and also not live because this is recorded and you will hear it after <laughs> it's recorded but you get what i'm saying <laughs> yeah Greg, it is episode. Oh, I gotta check this. Like, I always forget. Hold on. Don't hit the table. The tables in my house are not as structurally sound. I have no. I have no. Internet. Well, we, we could have fixed that. Hold you on. said you didn't need it. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Oh, you can use your Android phone. Can do Android phones do, do anything? Android phones can't do anything. Do you know what episode we are on? Twenty. I think it's twenty-four. Seven. I think it's twenty-four. One hundred thirty-six. Twenty-four. It's the twenty-fifth episode. Episode twenty-three. The twenty-fourth episode. What? I thought the twenty-third was. Oh, it was the twenty-second, twenty-third last time. The Jack Man, Bauer episode. Once you once you start getting to bigger array sizes, you start to wonder like, why is the zero indexed? Stack overflow. Like zero to nine arrays. When you think about arrays, like traditionally, you're like, oh, they're like nine character, like nine things long. Usually, when you're like dealing with small arrays. Yes, that's true. Examples and stuff. Single digits. Single digits. Maybe you get to ten, so you have eleven items. That's too but, much. But you know when you're. When you're starting to get into the hundreds of podcast episodes, you're going to be like, oh my God. Well, that's why we went it's with- episode 99. The, oh, it's the 100th uh, it's episode. It's the 100th episode. It looks really weird though. Yeah, right? but the only people that know should know. And then they should be like, you guys are nerds. And that's what we want. So. That's, what, that's exactly what we want. The people that know, the people that understand are the people that listen and they care. And they're all about it. And we appreciate y'all. Because yeah. you guys know about arrays. And you guys know about how zero indexing works. Zero Index would have been an amazing podcast name, by the way. What? Why didn't you do that? I don't know. We thought of it afterwards. Mm. I thought of a bunch of names after we started. Mm-hmm. I thought of, should I read them off? I have like a little running list in my head. Zero Index. Yeah, you should have done that. The Interface. It's a little bit too matrixy. Well, I was thinking like it, like TypeScript interfaces. The but, Interface. Well, I don't, something like that. I don't know. Public Static Void String Args Podcast. Static Void? That's the Java. Static void would have been a good one. Yeah, maybe, but it doesn't make any sense without no pointer. No pointer is so common. Nope. Well, we are we are pretty common people. I know someone who has a Java dot lang dot no pointer exception tattoo. Wait, he has the whole thing. I thought he just had the words no pointer. No, it's the whole thing. I didn't actually see this. Yeah, it's on his arm. He was in town that one time. Yeah, he was in town. Yeah. Is he listening to the show? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think we have anyone. I don't think we have any hits from his. locale in the world so i don't i don't know that'd be cool yeah. if he did though i mean i don't i mean he probably would if i told him about it shout out to the homies yeah ecuadorian homies yes that's true yeah greg episode 23 24th episode what are we talking about well we talked last today. week about needing to have book club and then i had some time so i read you know most of rework enough of it a good chunk of it good chunk of it 
and we're going to chat about it. You're going to tell me all the reasons why software engineering companies and companies in general today don't think about the right kind of stuff. Well, I'm going to tell you why this is the Bible. All right. Maybe that's, maybe that's a better, better way to praise it. All right. Well, give me your, your, you know, 30 seconds feel about why it's the Bible. We have talked about this book a little bit. I made this book, my pick uh, a few weeks back. Yeah. Because of a lot of reasons. One, it's a very easy read. It's not a diatribe. It's not an encyclopedia. Yeah. I've read, I've read as much of, I've read uh, more than two thirds of it in like two one hour sittings. It's a, it's a collection of essays. And oh. they also kind of include, well, Jason Fried is on record as having talked about this book in that sense is that he didn't go and set out to gay, say, I'm going to write a book about changing the way we work. He said, I had a collection of blog drafts, article drafts, notes from interviews, all kinds of stuff just laying around. And he was like, there's a theme here. Yeah. There's, a, there's a thread that I can thread through all these things. And putting all those things together resulted in this book. Yeah. So why is it so powerful? What well, is, the, the, the powerful thing about this book is that you can almost, like the back cover, we have a physical copy. The back cover of this book kind of summarizes everything in very simple language. I'm going to read this off to you. Yeah. ASAP is poison. Mm-hmm. Underdo the competition. My favorite, meetings are toxic. That is definitely your favorite. If anybody knows you, that's your favorite. Fire the workaholics. Oh, I would, I would be gone. Emulate drug dealers. Hmm. Pick a fight. Planning is guessing. Inspiration is perishable. Yeah. You should hold on to it because you can look at the titles. So Chapters. The reason why all these things are extremely powerful is that they kind of are not common ideas that you would learn at business school, your MBA coming in trying to revolutionize your software business. They're not, they're not taught these at good old HBS or. No, a lot of the things, a lot of the things in there, the way he explains it are things that are directly opposite to what you're taught in business school. Yes. You have a business degree. I do have a business degree. I do have a graduate. I do have an MBA. And so I do know what I'm talking about when I'm saying none of these things were in any of my classes. In fact, I would, I'm pretty sure that most, if not all of my professors would look at me with a third eye if I suggested any of these. You should ask them. You should write one of them. I had a class entirely on <laughs> business planning. Yeah. And how everything needs to be planned to the T. That one was interesting. That chapter was talking a lot about whether or not you need to document things, which I thought was very interesting because we spent a lot of time documenting a lot of stuff uh, where we work and have worked and like just talking about just different ways you document document, like uh, diagrams, uh, actual feature sets, everything. And they say that you should not do that. No, you don't need to. Because it's a waste of time because everything is changing. The way that he explained it was actually pretty interesting. He said that when you document something, I don't, I don't need the book, I remember, I just read it. He said um, that when you document things, everybody else who's seeing what you documented is just ignoring, essentially ignoring your documents. They're basically saying, oh, well, you know, yeah, you wrote this down and you explain how this is going to work and they're skipping over it. It's kind of like when you read a book and you you um, imagine a character being a certain way. So no matter how, what it says on the page, you think that it, the character is the way you visualize them in your head. It's the same thing with documenting 
anything. I'm not even going to say programming, just anything, any concept of any business venture or idea that you're documenting. Everybody who's reading that document is basically ignoring what you said and they have their own vision of what it is and they can't get past that. No. So documenting it is basically, for what they say, it's basically pointless because it's not an agreement. No, it's not. But people assume that it is because it's written down. Even yeah. if the things that are written down are 100% wrong and misguided and actually contribute to bring down an organization. So yes, you make very good points. I agree with all of them. But yeah. th- that is kind of one of the central tenets of this book is that the way that you build a business, the way that you move forward is not to do things better or bigger or try to outdo everybody else. It's about coming up with one thing that you're really good at, doing it really, really well, getting out of the way of good people that you hire, letting them do their thing. I think yeah. the meetings are toxic is my favorite one. Yeah, I know. that's gonna That would be your favorite, favorite thing. Yeah. I think that's a very common topic in, I don't know, let's say the technology subculture of today. I think it's a pretty... I was talking to uh, my girlfriend about it and she... I was like, I was explaining the reasons why meetings are toxic and she was like, uh-huh, 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 yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. She understood like every one of them. Yeah, it makes sense. So it's not sense. specific to technology. It's that... Isn't it kind of, isn't that how Elon Musk runs his meetings at, at SpaceX? That if you're not necessary for the meeting, you're not there? I don't think that's him. That is something that I've read that there, there's this kind of like anti meeting manifesto of like, this is how you schedule meetings. One, you have a detailed, planned out agenda for literally every single minute of the meeting. Yeah. And if someone's not needed for that, like if you, if you were to say, have like, if they even had an hour meeting, which I don't know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they do. Based Better on. Not. Yeah, like if you're not, if every person is not necessary for every portion of that meeting, then you don't need to be there. And if you're having meetings that are an hour long, where only, you know, 10, say there's 10 people, well, six people that are required for 10 minutes for an hour, then you shouldn't have that as one meeting. No. The really, the other really interesting thing about the meeting one that I thought of that, that he, they mentioned that didn't really occur to me before, but you know, you say like you have an hour meeting and then a business will say, this meeting is an hour of time that's going to strategize and synergize our plans and make everything all straightforward and we're going to figure everything out in this hour meeting. It's going to be great. We're going to have all this perspective on what we're doing. If that meeting has 15 people in it, you just cost the business 15 hours. 15 main hours, yes. Not one hour, 15 hours. And I think that's really interesting because a lot of people don't realize that or it doesn't really occur to them that when you schedule a meeting, you're not only like we, we think about it at work where, you know, you schedule a one hour meeting and you're like, okay, we're going to take one hour out of the day period to resync on this particular concept or whatever, or get this answer, et cetera, et cetera. Usually they're 30 minute meetings, but say 30 minutes, but then you invite five people and you say like these 10 people are required and these five, or sorry, these five, these four people are required. This one person is optional but literally just looking at that email for that non-required person is like a five-minute adventure just to figure out what it is, especially if you have no meeting notes because a lot of the times there's no agenda. There's no agenda. There's not even an agenda. It's there's like no plan. They think, people think that the title of the meeting is equivalent to the agenda. Yeah. Which is, that's insane. It's not. Meetings, meetings cannot be open-ended. They cannot be exploratory. Yeah. That is a waste of time. Well, even if they're not exploratory, like if they're, if there's a direct meeting, like synchronize on, you know, uh, project phase two 
requirements. Like that, that sounds like a perfect title for a meeting that I've seen a million times. Yeah. That's a terrible meeting. It's a terrible meeting title. There's no, well, it's not just a bad title. That is a terrible meeting because we've all been in that meeting. And what happens is that we all show up and we all argue about what the requirements are. And guess what doesn't happen at the end of the meeting? You don't have a list of requirements that everyone's agreed on. No. True. So guess what you have to have? What? Another meeting. Well, yeah, you have to have another meeting because then you align on what the requirements are and then you have to get a, have another meeting or another discussion to define the requirements and it just never ends. And it just never ends. I'm going to read a little bit. Mm, story time. A little bit of story time here. Ooh, the lights just shifted. Lights are changing for story time. Yeah. My house is all automated with the uh, hue lights. Yes, you so told us, Greg. It's, it's pretty cool. Like well, it. that's really annoying because what I, I know what that is. That means that my girlfriend just started driving home from work. And when I gave her a, um, an Apple shortcut that turns the lights on at home when she leaves, like when she says I'm driving home. But then oh. if I'm home, it changes all the colors of the lights because I had this one on blue. What, anyways, if, you're, what if you're studying? What if you're in an important meeting? Anyway, rules for meetings if you must, if you must have the meetings. Rules for meetings. One, set a timer. When the timer rings, the meeting is over, no matter what. Invite as few people as possible. Always have a clear agenda. Begin with a specific problem. This one's a good one. Meet at the site of the problem instead of a conference room. Yeah, I saw that one. That was interesting. End with a solution and make someone responsible for implementing it. That is one thing that is sorely meeting from the common meeting. Sorely missing from the common meeting is that no one is responsible for anything that comes out of the meeting. Yeah. And then you have to ask questions the meeting. Yeah, I mean, it's usually like the, I remember there's a lot of meetings that I've had where the project manager, the producer, what do you, whatever you want to call it, is doing their job. They're, t- you know, they're telling you what, what needs to happen. And then at the end of the meeting, it's just like, it's assumed that the technology people know what they're doing. And it's assumed that they're going to do the rest of the work. And it's like, well, you know, uh, I might not only be on this project and I might not only be, you know, this might not be my only concern of the day and I might have another meeting immediately after this. So it's like, if you don't have, and then sometimes they'll say like, you know, uh, at Greg and Outlook or whatever is going to look into blah. And it's like, well, when am I going to do that? When the ne- you've scheduled literally another meeting in the next 30 minutes after that. Yes. For a different project, for a different portion of the project or whatever. And then, you know, you look at some people, you look at like the the higher up you go, you look at someone's calendar. Like mine wasn't quite there yet where it was insane. But you look at like, say, my, you know, boss's calendar and their calendar is just constant, all blocked out. The entire thing is blocked out. And, uh, you know, you're just like, well, how are they going to get literally anything done? And then you assume when they go to these meetings that they're going to, like they're the sole decision maker and they're going to, you know, just come in, say something, make the decision and then walk out. But in reality, a lot of the times people are just even giving them a, a set of tasks to do that are informal and not required, like not defined. It's not like they say, I've sent a follow-up meeting and they invite or sorry, like a follow-up email and they're like, please answer these questions. It's just like, they just assume that they're going to go then do something else. Yes. That's another thing in that chapter is that it talks about how, one of the other problems with meetings is the before and after the meeting. So all yeah. meetings typically have some sort of prep work, which again is wasted time because you're not working on the actual work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So then the time spent on this meeting is also multiplied. And then for developers, we've talked about this before, is that the meetings are just an interruption in your day, in the flow of your day. 
if they're scheduled at the wrong time, you can waste a lot of t- a lot of developer hours by scheduling a meeting at the wrong time. Yeah. Right. If you, the only real workable times for developers would be either at the very beginning of the day, the very end of the day, or somewhere in the middle that splits the day evenly for that developer schedule because you need large blocks of time in order to do that deep work. And if you do things like, oh, we're going to have a meeting at 1030 and everybody comes to the office at nine, well, okay, that's an hour and a half time that you've just wasted because a developer literally cannot get anything done in an hour and a half. Yeah. And they're going to be in a meeting for an hour and then there's going to be another 30 minutes of prep work or follow up or whatever from there. And then it's lunch. And then it's lunch. You've literally wasted a half a day of a developer's time just by scheduling a meeting. Yeah. And that stuff snowballs all the stuff. So th- those are all things I'm sure that people have read about the ills of meetings and, and maybe we don't need to go too much further into it. But this is a book that I think that really lays it out very plainly, very clearly. And remember, this, these are, this is a book written by two guys who run a very large software company. Yeah. They built it from the ground up. And yeah. they're not having insane number of meetings like you are. So... Yeah. Maybe maybe it's worth thinking about that if you do work at a place or are in charge of people where meetings are a thing. Yeah, another one of the um, <clears throat> kind of off the meeting ones. I know it's like your favorite your favorite topic in the that world. That is my that is my favorite. That's one, your yes. jam. Anti meetings is Albert's jam. But um, in the other section on progress, they talk about one of them that I found really interesting that I've kind of internalized and seen in the past and seen people try to have this kind of perspective on their company but it's called sell your byproducts. And I think that's really interesting because if you think back on, or if you look back, or if you don't know anything about this book, um, they created 37 Signals. It was the original name of the company. It was the original name of the company. And then what they created there was a bunch of tools for them to maintain, to manage their products the way they wanted, or their clients the way they wanted to. Yeah, they built their own CRM tool for themselves because they couldn't find one that they liked. Yeah. And they made it exactly the way that they wanted. And it turned out it was a thing that that they could sell. And yeah. so that product was Basecamp. I think that one had a different Basecamp. that one had a different name. But yeah, I know what you're saying. And then they changed the name of the company to Basecamp because that was the main thing that they sold because it was so good that other people pay a lot of money for it. Yeah. And that all started from them scratching their own itch. Yeah, I mean, and they talk about another thing about it. another one they say, yeah, the scratch your own itch section is about you know, build the things that you actually want to build and build the things that you care about. So if you're really interested in, in trying to figure out how to make a, you know, a, a team of developers work more efficiently, then maybe you should be building something like Basecamp or, you know, to compete with Atlassian to say like, well, you know, Atlassian is, I think it's a great product, but it's really, really complicated and it has a lot of options that maybe some people don't need. It's kind of why Trello was built. Yes, Because Trello true. is essentially just the Kanban model with nothing else, no cruft, just the basic cards that can move across things. And, you know, that's another company where they basically took a concept that, you know, I don't know who, I don't know who invented the, the, um, the Kanban board. It wasn't, it wasn't Jira. It wasn't Atlassian. It was, no, that was a a concept um, of scrum, right? It was a, no, the Kanban process came from, I think Toyota and their assembly line thing. It's a, it's a very Japanese thing. That's Kanban's Japanese word. Yeah. We should have, you know, for our next, um, book report that we should do. There's another book that I read on the, what was it called? It's the, it's the orange book that's on DevOps. That's by um, one of the guys that went to Docker. He has a podcast. I don't think he's there anymore, but he went, 
he went to Docker like kind of after that as an evangelist. And then it's, I think it's the DevOps handbook. And it's like a really good book that talks about where Agile came from and where, and, you know, it came out of Toyota Katata movement or Kata movement or whatever it was called. And they talk about all that. I was thinking of Takata airbags. That's not what it is. <laughs> the, it's like the Kata movement. I don't know. Is Toyota. that what you think of when you think of Toyota these days? I mean, it's what you think about when you think about any car company. Oh, they, all that, they all had that airbag recall. Oh, man. But anyway, you know, my car had to be fixed for the airbag recall, but whatever. Yeah, so like that book was really good because it's kind of like a parallel to this, but it's not, this is more, um, like we were talking last week, this is more of like galaxy level thinking about the business. The, the DevOps handbook is more, I mean, it is galaxy level thinking, but it's more specific to like the process around how you build things. So like some of the, sections in here that are like a 10 page section that they've kind of internalized these kind of philosophies on how to be productive and how to build things and how to whatever they've kind of internalized and built their own version of agile i would imagine and that book kind of like talks about where that movement came from and why and how and and all of that so it's a really interesting book too um yeah another one that i thought that was really interesting was in the section on Go, the title of the, the chapter section is just Go, where you're kind of, it's like where scratch your own itches and all that kind of stuff. One of them I thought was really interesting that I've kind of internalized and thought of a lot is outside money is plan Z. Basically talking about how taking um, investor money, taking seed money to build a company should be your last resort because the minute that you hand over any portion of your business in exchange for money, you lose control. Yes. Which is pretty interesting. What do you think about that? Well, that the the rise of kind of Silicon Valley style venture capital is actually a relatively recent new phenomenon in business, right? It used to be that the stock market existed for a reason, and that you kind of had to prove your metal to mm-hmm. a bunch of layers of bureaucracy in terms of investment banks and public perception things like that. You had to basically prove that your business could make money before mm-hmm. people would buy your shares, yeah. right? And Somewhere over the last 100, 120 years of, of U.S. financial markets, we've decided that we are now just going to bet on whether or not a company might make money in the future. And it, it, it is kind of a, a long way from where the seeds of where those markets have come from. And so venture capital is kind of a front-running operation to all of this. They're trying to basically place a lot of bets. Hopefully one of them hits and pays for all the other ones that fail. And so if you have a lot of little pieces of ownership and a lot of, lot of companies, then you're, you're spreading out your bets. You're, you're hoping that one of them will work. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I've, I've thought about that because I've tried in the past to start like a couple small companies and just thinking about like, you know, what are the, what are like, what is the end game? Like, what is the goal? Like, do you want to get funding? Do you, do you want to try to build a company? Like, what is, what is the end goal? Yeah. And, um, and these days they like to refer to that as an exit, mm-hmm. which is also something to talk about in this book. But even just generally speaking, if you're building a business and your goal is to exit, you're not building a business. You're trying to fool somebody into giving you money. Yeah. Well, Those are two different things. What we're talking about right here is there's another section called start a business, not a startup. Yes. And then building to flip is building to flop. Yes. Two chapters right after each other. Yes. Those are related yeah. chapters and those are, those are true because, again, if, if your intent is for someone to purchase your company from you, do you really have the long-term business 
goals of your business in mind? No, you don't. No. You're you're trying to wax up that old car really nice, make sure the leather is good, and maybe maybe fix that one little cigarette burn stain in the carpet just long enough so that somebody will give you money for it and they will drive it off. That's oh. literally what you're doing. So it, it it's it's really hard these days to see through a lot of, especially what we see from the Silicon Valley area where there are a lot of people saying a lot of things that don't mean anything. Our company's here to change the world. Yeah. It's like We're going to make the world a better place. It's like the fire festival. Place. The fire yeah. festival deck. And that's great. Your business is what now? You deliver grilled cheese sandwiches yeah, by drone? It's a business. Yeah, we drone those grilled cheese sandwiches. Very important. You made an app that all it does is send the word yo to yeah. somebody? Yeah, yo is a very important word. What do you mean? Yeah, some it's you, changing lives. Two letters that, at a time. That, those two. I'm not even making those up. Those are two literal. I'm going to put links to those <laughs> in the show. Those are literally two businesses that were given millions of dollars in VC money for what? For what? To be able to say yo, man. To be able to say it's yo. Real important. To be able to say yo, and so a lot of what Silicon Valley and and that kind of ecosystem is is giving us these days is a lot of salesmanship and. It, it's pretty hard, especially when you've seen uh, like the Uber IPO recently and the Lyft IPO recently, whereas companies like that 100 years ago would have would have been laughed out of the banks, right? Because in their financial disclosures at the beginning, before any of these shares went public, there are literally sentences in these things that say, we do not have a plan to become profitable at any point in time in the future. Uber's, Uber's S1 actually says that. A lot of these tech companies who have gone public actually have said that. And so... The way that they're treating the public markets is as bag holders. Like, oh, well, if we can fool enough people, if we can fool enough banks to buy our shares and to sell them to people and give us money for them just long enough so that we can get rich. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a fool's game. So I was glad that they addressed that directly in this book with no, they didn't cut corners. They didn't beat around the bush on that one. They were very clear about why that is bad. And maybe you should think about when you go to work for a startup or someone where they have a goal of not being the owners of that business anymore. Maybe you should think about what you're doing there. Well, I think there's only one you want. There's only one case where I think that isn't true. And that's when you're, you know that you're building a product that is, something that you think is going to be in addition to an existing company and your express reason for building it is because that business is not, um, is not focusing on that. So like say you were building something that would work really, really well with one of Google's products. Let's just take one that's not advertising related like Google Compute. And you're saying, oh, well, I'm going to build an orchestration environment specifically for Google Compute let's just assume they didn't have one because they do, that would build servers for them and provision them and do all these things. And they don't have the ability for a customer to go in and do that, right? Like a company that does this is Terraform. So they have a company, but they're not building it for that express purpose. But let's just say something like that, where Google has an API that allows you to create instances and create servers and provision them and run shell scripts to provision them and do all these things, but they're not glued together in a way that allows them to be easily adapted. So 
they're kind of the API is there, but it's not like as easy to use as say Terraform. So you build this tool and you say, I'm building this with the express purpose of gluing together the Google completes compute services into an easy to use API. But my express reason for building this is to be is to be bought by Google. And you're intending to be acquihired. I think that's like the only time that your reasoning for creating a company that's going to be acquired could be valid. I think that you have the beginnings of a good point in there. Well, I, I don't would, really know I would, business. So. I, would po- I would pose a question <laughs> yeah. to you. I would pose a hypothetical surround, kind of surrounding your point. So say you have two companies who are, doing, who are both doing the, th- the exact same thing that you're talking about. As an outside company to Google. As outside companies yeah. to Google. Mm-hmm. One of them is building this product because they want to use it for their own product. Yeah, I mean, they that's want to use it for their where, own services. The other yeah. one are expressly starting their company specifically to be bought by Google. Which one of those two companies are you, do you think are going to be more successful in 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years? Well, I mean, the company that's building it expressly to sell to Google is either going to get absorbed by Google or the tech's going to get absorbed by them. The people that are building it for the sole purpose of expanding their existing business might build that tool and... Let's just say the best case, they do keep working on it and they do, and they are actually intending to sell it to Google. They can either sell the technology, take the money, and then go back to working on what their original business was, or they're going to abandon their original business and then continue working on the product that was a byproduct of their business. Well, so which one of those two? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that you're to answer your question, the one that I'd rather work on. It's probably the company that where the product came out of a need that they had, which is why I think what you're what you're asking. Right. But which one's gonna be more successful? I don't know. Because the one that's building it with the intention of selling it to Google could just see the analogous reasoning or the reasoning of why you would want that product and understand the business well enough that they could build a product that fits in well with Google's ecosystem and then be intending to sell it. So they, like, what I'm getting at is they could have seen those needs in the past. Like they didn't have to like have and needed a business to build it. They could just have seen that over the course of 10 years of working with Google. So that is close. It's close. I don't know. The point that is being made in this book that we are discussing at our book club yeah. is that the sheer concept of the fact that your intent is to be purchased by another company masks your ability and interferes with your ability and actually prevents you from actually building a good product. So it's a bit of a paradox in the sense that your express intent is going to prevent you from achieving your expressed intent. I think generally that's true. Yeah, I would agree with that. I just think that some people, you never really know. I guess, yeah. I mean, the company who whose express purpose is to sell is going to either not cut corners and build the technology well enough that Google wants to buy them and doesn't just copy them. Because he mentions that in here too. There's a section on competitors don't copy. And I think in that um, in that specific section, I'm pretty sure he mentioned like, A, it's not good to copy people because you don't have anything new to add. And you don't quite, under- I think his reasoning was that you don't have anything new to add and you don't quite understand the reasoning why they, you only see where they are. You don't see where they've been. So copying somebody is pointless because you don't understand the A to B to C. You only understand the C. Right. And you'll never catch up to where they are already. You're, yeah. you're always playing catch up. You're always playing catch so up. So there are a couple of themes that we just read off the back of the book that are related to that point. Underdo the competition. Pick a fight. And then there's uh, there's another section in the book that talks about more about um, 
I would say like focusing your intent, focusing what it is that you're working on. So instead of trying to build the next Gmail, mm-hmm. you should be like a, a more successful product would be something like Boomerang. Yeah, I was about to say that. Right. That's a that's a really good example, right? Because if Boomerang was like, we're gonna build an, we're gonna build a better email service, there's no way they succeed with that. No. Right. Because you can't compete with a company the size of Google, both in technical expertise or experience. But what they did is that they built a very useful, helpful, complementary tool to Gmail. And so yeah. they can exist in that space because that is uh kind of a little crevice that maybe the Gmail team can't afford to put resources towards because it's too small and doesn't generate revenue or yeah, whatever. The so other, those are the places where yeah. if you're starting a business, that's where you're going to be able to fit in. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to say that kind of where I was going with the don't copy is that if what you're building is so simple that Google wakes up one day and says, you know, that should just be a feature of Gmail and they build it, your entire business is gone. I've seen that happen with a few apps that I've used. That is true. Instagram with the stories. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the biggest example that I can think of. Well, they because, did that to copy Snap, and then they ended well, up. Well, it's because it's because the geniuses of Snap turned down three billion dollars. Well, yeah, and then Instagram basically just copied their idea, and then Snap's not doing that well. <laughs> but yeah, that, that story is peak peak Silicon Valley arrogance, hmm. right? Now, granted, uh, Snapchat is located in Los Angeles, where we live, but these people are very plugged into the Silicon Valley ecosystem. They are products of that ecosystem. Right. And it is a uniquely Silicon Valley mindset to say, oh, I'm sorry, three billion. That's not enough. Yeah, we feel that's not enough. like they pulled the whole Facebook thing. We think that Snap has the ability to change the world and we think that we're worth more than that. It's like well, they believe they, they own dogs. The, 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 the CEO who has a very punchable face, he God. is on record, uh, I think a few months after that, where he said, no, we don't think that we're worth three and a half million billion. We think we're worth 10 billion. Yeah. Or something along those lines. He said that they were off by orders of magnitude, not by 10, 20%. How's that working out? How's that working out for them? I don't know. I'm asking you. It's not working out for them. They oh. had to sell a couple <laughs> buildings. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a, a story of a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing with way too much money. I mean, that's... We could do a whole episode on, on their problems. Man, I am, I am spicy today, man. I'm just bringing the yeah. heat. I am just in a mood. So what, what else from this book? What are, what are some other good things that you learned and, and you like from the book? Well, kind of on the same vein, there's a section on decommoditizing your product. Ooh, tell me. Yeah, I'll read just the first sentence of it. It says, if you're successful, people will try to copy what you do. It's just a fact of life. But there's a great way to protect yourself from copycats. Make you part of your product or service. Inject what's unique about the way you think into what you sell. Decommoditize your product. Make it something that no one else can offer. In the example, I'm not going to read it, but it's about Zappos and how the CEO is so involved in the company and he and the, he puts the um, his philosophy into customer service and yes. all of that, the Zappos story, whatever. Kind of talks about that. But yeah, that's interesting is that, you know, thinking like what, you know, what is it, if you have a product that isn't just a product, like, like Boomerang, for instance, not putting them down or anything, but like Boomerang is Boomerang. Like it allows you to send emails at a later date and it allows you to resend emails to yourself at a later date to remind you that this email was sent to you. There's no, there's no personality to that product. Like what in that product, like it has a, an interesting name, I guess, but like, well, it's a, it's a pretty literal name, but like what in there, what in that company is personalized? It's literally just a company that's built around a specific action within Gmail. The, the logo is the same colors as the Google logo. Oh, oh 
cool. <laughs> I mean, Boomerang is a cool name. I think the 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 only piece of kind of personality that they have in is that they I think they refer to sending an email back to yourself as boomeranging it mm-hmm. back to yourself, which I guess is where the idea comes from. But you're right though. There's not that much personality in it. But to be fair to them, I mean, how much personality can you? Well, that's, what, that's, what, that's what they're trying to say is like with that single product, like the best that you can do is have a, a product that has utility, but there's nothing. I'm not trying to put them down. I'm just saying that there's nothing essentially, maybe there's nothing in that product itself that can propel the product to be more personal. It's just a, it's just a utility. That's true. So, I mean, it's not saying that it's a bad idea or a bad company or a bad idea. It just means that you know, the, the, if say for instance that Gmail adds a feature that allows boomerangs to be sent directly from Gmail, what are they going to do? They're just not going to have a company. That's true, but that that is a, a business risk that you run into. But your to to your point, if you go back to other things that they talk about in the book about building your own complements or building things that you need, yeah. right? It. Do you, if you've built this boomerang tool and it helps you manage your email way, way better, does it really matter if anyone else uses it? I mean, it matters if you're trying to make a company out of it. But I mean, maybe sure it not. does, but if, if you've scratched your own itch, as they say in the book, if you focus your efforts into building this really, really good product with a, well, we wish the UI was a little bit better, but it, let, let's say you make these all awesome improvements and all the automation works really well. And it's really fast. It's really easy to use. It's very simple. It helps you get a, a hold of your Gmail. If you've accomplished that for yourself with this tool, isn't that worth it? Yeah, but that's, I mean, it, that's the idea behind the book. Yeah, I mean, it is. If if that, um, but the question is like, how do you make a business out of it? And I think that kind of gets at the other one. It's like start, you know, they, they say start a business, not a startup. You know, all these things about um, creating a company on the go section. Like, what is the impetus for creating Boomerang? Like, it helped me, right? So it had yeah. the person who made it, it helped them do something um, at the time that they were using it. So maybe that is enough. Um, I've just seen, like, other apps. Like, another, there was a, there was an email client. You know how the, the, the revolving door of Mac email clients? I don't know anything there, about that. There's, there's always, a, like, a really good email client that comes out from Mac. There's a new one like all the time? All the time. There's like really? a new one all the time that's like supposed to be better, more built on AI and does more things and helps you be more productive in your email, et cetera, et cetera. And then they are around for three or four months and they leave. Because, what happens to them? Well, there's where is what kind of money can you make with an email program? You sell the program. Oh. You can sell the program, but is it better than Apple's internal mail client? If you don't have anything that's additional or useful in that program, what's the point in having it? How much do these programs usually go for? 20 bucks? 20 bucks or so, probably 20, 19.99, maybe 9.99 if it's an app in the App Store. The thing is that email in and of itself is about as good like default email that wherever you access your email from is about as good as it's going to get. And so any improvements on top of that are marginal. Are they twenty dollars worth marginal? Uh, I guess not from the well, sounds what, of it. But that's what they try to convince you. They try to say, well, you know, this particular one. Um, there was one of them that was. I think it was. I don't know if it was Airmail. Airmail is pretty good, so I don't want to put any of these particular companies down. But like one of them, there was a bot in the email. So like back when chatbots were like a big thing, and you back, could ask, back, back last year. <laughs> well, yeah, when they were like all the craze, someone made an email program that literally the whole the whole purpose of it is that it had a bot that was like an assistant within your email program, and you can say. 
you know, when was the last time that Albert emailed me? Which is literally the same thing as going to the search box and saying subject, or it's, uh, you know, sender equals Albert. Did it just send you reminders? Like, hey, Albert, you haven't sent Greg an email in 4.75 days. No. You should email him again to follow up and touch base and network your network. I mean, I'm sure that that's what was in their pitch deck, but it I, didn't. I no. mean, you should talk like that too, right? Well, it was just text, but sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm sure that's what was their intention or their idea or their their end game. But at the same time, it's like, well, a lot of, I mean, then you have an entire shift in the industry. Then people move away from email and move into Slack because Slack comes out. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, you can get away from email because it's so asynchronous and it's so blah, blah, blah. And then they created Slack. And then everybody's like, oh my God, everybody's bugging me on Slack. I want to go back to asynchronous emails. Yes. It's like, they keep switching back and forth between the different communication methods. And I guess what I'm getting at is like, you know, you, you people will typically try to build a business that they think will help or change or augment the way that people communicate at work. And then they'll realize that, you know, for, I found this very interesting. It's also something I've thought about with programming too, that like, you'll build something that you think will be revolutionary or life-changing or some kind of plugin that will do something that will be so great and so different. And then you end up realizing that the, um, that, you know, maybe it was better to just send an email because emails are asynchronous. And when people become really busy, it's actually more um, productive and more professional to just send them a message in an email and let them respond when they're ready. Yes, but, asynchronous. Yeah, but the Slack philosophy of like, I want a response, I want someone to start, you want to see that Albert Park is typing like immediately, like I'm going to give you the response right now. That whole like millennial culture around communication, I need the answer right now, leads to people being more, I mean, a lot of the things in this book get broken. You know, the interruption is the enemy of productivity is killed with Slack. Yes. Because Slack people are always expecting that you're going to answer when you someone just slacks you. And if, you know, I've noticed at work too, like if someone slacks you and you don't respond, they come to your desk. Yes. Even if you have headphones on and you're working, they come and they ask you. They tap, they oh, physically touch you. Did you, well, I'm not that big a deal on that, but like. Well, no. <laughs> it's not when, like a When we say that mind. we don't want people tapping us on the shoulder, we literally mean, I do not want you to touch me. I don't mean, I, mean, I don't know. I'm not that big on personal space. <laughs> There's this thing in human brains called the fight or flight response. Yeah. And if I'm zoned the F out with my noise canceling headphones, so I can't hear you walking up on me with my music that I'm listening to, whatever it happens to be that day. And I am down a rabbit hole of some reduxy hook state, you state hooks nonsense. And somebody touches me <laughs> that I'm not expecting I'm about to deck that person. I might turn around swinging. I might jump up with a roundhouse kick. I, I don't know. <laughs> Do you see Arnold Schwarzenegger get kicked? Oh, Sweet man. He, that, yeah. That's really bad. Anyway, <laughs> like you, you can't just run up on somebody like that. You just can't. A lot of bad things are going to happen to you. So yeah, that, that is a big personal pet peeve of mine. There have been several instances where I've actually like jumped, like done this thing where like I physically like halfway jump out of my chair because somebody interrupted me and... Oh, it's like, I just wanted to see. Da, 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 da. I was like, don't touch me. Are you serious? <laughs> Do you have any idea what is happening right now? How deep a hole I'm in? Oh, man. It's like, uh. <sighs> I imagine you like at work, like choosing your desk around the most defensible situation. Well, I am. Because I always seat myself to where in order for people to talk to me, they have to walk past me to talk to me. I try to. 
Yeah, it's kind of hard. It depends on it depends on the seating arrangement. Depends on the seating arrangement. Everyone should have offices. That's a thing. I actually my current seat uh, is my third seat at my company that I've been on for three months. Uh, I'm facing a window on the 10th floor, which is really nice because the view is amazing. It makes me happy. Which way of LA does it face? Does it, it faces... The Capitol Records uh, side or the other way? I can see downtown. Oh, so you're facing... So it faces east. East. But it's a big enough window to where my direct line of vision is like directly east down Hollywood Boulevard. But then like one pane of glass over, I can see the entire skyline of downtown. You know the um, the Godzilla thing that's coming out of the Cinerama Dome? Have you seen that? Isn't wouldn't that, oh, wouldn't that the, would be uh, the, the billboard? I can't quite see that one because wow. um, the next building over, like two buildings over from my building, is a hotel that has a very large sign. Like oh. it's one of those old Hollywood hotels that has the name of the. I hotel think I know hotel. what you're talking about, and I can see the back of that sign. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so your view of like Hollywood Boulevard is blocked. But it's your view blocked of downtown a little bit, isn't. But my view of it, I can see all the way. I can see like how cloudy it is. Like there was one day where it was literally just raining in downtown. I could see it. I think I remember that day. It was like recently. So it's kind of nice, yeah. but it means that my back is facing towards the main like walkway of where people walk by people's desks. Mm-hmm. And so I have had a couple of times where people have walked up to me, but thankfully they didn't touch me. You're so weird. And, uh, this, uh, I don't get like, I feel like when you're coding, you're like in this war zone where you're like, I'm trying to solve this problem. And uh, if anybody says, oh my God. <laughs> well, it's just there, there's kick. kind of an intensity of focus that uh, when you kind of lose track of everything else going on, it's kind of like, if you, you're watching it, a scary movie and some, you're paying attention kind of, to what's happening kind of and then someone thing. pokes it's you. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, it's also kind of like if, like if you're watching a movie and somebody in the movie is like driving, but they're like getting, they're like daydreaming or like distracted. Yeah. And then suddenly like somebody honks a horn or something and yeah. their reaction instantly is to slam on the brakes. Yeah. That makes sense, I guess. It's that sort of thing. I I, that, really that's a weird that. tangent, but like, yeah, I was just curious. If you see a developer <laughs> and they're working hard, don't touch them. Just don't touch them. I don't know why. Don't. It's weird. Just I, don't touch them. It doesn't bother me, but as for consent. <laughs> okay. So speaking of picking a fight, one of the other chapters that I found interesting is picking pick a fight. Yes, tell us about this one. This is what this is actually probably my favorite chapter in the book. Yeah. So he talks about, um, you know, don't basically the the nutshell of it is. Don't just don't just have a company where you're, um, you know, you're like, oh well, my product is great because of this. Like, you know, take take the very aggressive approach of being the anti something. So, the examples that he one of the examples he gives is like Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks, and he says, you know, that um, Dunkin' Donuts positions itself as the anti Starbucks, and they have they mock Starbucks for using. Italian terms instead of small, medium, and large. And they created a website called DuncanBeatStarbucks.com where visitors can send e-cards with statements like friends don't let friends drink Starbucks, which is pretty hilarious. Yes. Um, I've seen some brands do this with, uh, like a lot of the fast food companies have like this constant just like online like joke argument with each other about um, just like anything that they do. And it's kind of interesting. Like, it's an interesting way. Like, they try to, like, I think the bigger companies try to, like, copy that philosophy. Some of them do it pretty successfully where they, um, you know, actually do have that kind of attitude. And it's funny. Like, I would say, like, the argument that, like, Taco Bell and and McDonald's have with each other all the time is pretty funny. Often it hits the news because it's pretty hilarious. Um, but then, like Burger King tries to get involved, and maybe they aren't as funny. They're just They're, doing it because well, actually, they have Burger to. King is is not too bad. Which one's the one? Maybe it's Wendy's, Ar- Wendy's is the one where their Twitter account just 
flames people mm-hmm. all day long and McDonald's and Taco Bell. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. It's really funny. I'm pretty sure there's a there's a, a subreddit dedicated to just the Wendy's Twitter account just roasting people. Yeah. Just mercilessly. I think the most common, the most like common um well-known version of this is like the Apple and Microsoft ads of the 1990s and 2000s. It was a pretty big one where that like, Oh yes. The With guy, John Hodgman, yes. Yeah, he was always like doing the whole, oh well, Dell, what are you doing? Dell was like a nerd. Yeah. It's a little bit different when like these gigantic companies are doing it, like uh the Google I.O. last week. I didn't even see anything they about this. They had a billboard. There was a billboard. Yeah. Um <laughs> there was two billboards, one on top of each other, like this. And the top one, and they were both pictures of they were both like low light pictures of like someone at a skating rink or something. Yeah. The top one was shot on an iPhone and it was super dark. You couldn't see what was going on. And it said phone X, not iPhone X, phone X. Yeah. MSRP 999. Yeah. yeah. And the bottom one said uh, Pixel 3a. Yeah. 399. And the Pixel 3a picture was way better. It was the exact same picture because they built the night side into the, that's a whole episode we could do. There's been a couple of things. UIO, Microsoft Build. Yeah, I didn't pay attention to either of those. Lenovo had a huge event. They had a bunch of fun Did they products. announce the laptop that I'm going to buy eventually? Uh, new X1 Extreme, i9, yeah. 1650, and a 4K OLED uh-huh. panel. How much is it? $12 million. No, I think the, the retails on the last one were like low 2000s, like 2200 that one I think might go up to like twenty four nine nine or something OLED, like that. Sure, but right? it's an OLED panel. Yeah. I mean, even the MacBook doesn't have that. That's crazy. Well, so what else in this book? Um, we've talked about the chapter on Go. Um, there was another one that I thought was interesting. Um, let me find it, even though I could do it from memory. I don't know where it is, but it's uh, basically don't write things down. Oh, it's an evolution. I thought that was really interesting. He was talking about, you know, when you, the example that he gave is like when you get a suggestion from a customer, a lot of the times your first instinct will be to, you know, go to Jira. It's a very short one. This is like a 20 20 or 30 word one. But like you go to Jira, someone tells you something. They're like, ah, I really wish that you would do feature A. So then you write it down in Jira and you create a potential, you know, backlog issue to think about, to address, to scope, to plan, to consider, will consider, potentially consider, blah, 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 feature customer asked for. And what he was saying is that you should basically should just never do that. Because if your customers want something, they'll ask you over and over and over and over again. And when they do, it will be hard to avoid the things that you should do. Another, like, a, you know, a good parallel to this is a personal pet peeve of mine. Going into the Albert being angry about Linux what? world. What? Which you always are, being what? angry about people not supporting things in Linux. What are you talking about? Dropbox drops support for all Linux file systems except for X4. Yes, it's ridiculous. Which is like, okay, fine. Most common Linux OSs use X4. Yes, that's true. Except... When you encrypt your freaking hard drive and it uses encrypt FS, which is probably just X4 with encrypted with encryption, but it comes up as a different. Thing. It comes up as a different. I don't know if it's based on X4, but um, you know, it's like 
and then I emailed them and I said, uh, you know, um, I under, I said, I understand that you, I understand why you guys remove these file systems because you believe that it's, I read their blog post. It makes it easier with uh, file flags that are not standard or whatever. They didn't want to spend time on it. Sure. That's all it is. You're, well, you're telling me that the tech people at Dropbox don't know, like it's out of their realm of expertise to be able to support different file systems? No, of course no, not. No, they said, no, they had a system that supported other file systems. Dropbox worked on a lot of different Linux file systems. They decided that dropping the, exper- I'm sure they have their reasoning, but dropping the additional file system flags, they specifically use it for like the knowing when a file is dropped in a folder thing that allows it to upload. Like that whole hack that they do to make that work essentially requires that there's the the experimental file, like not experimental, but like there's file system flags for like when a file is written, when a file is streamed, when a file is like being written to or has been written to or has been moved. Or There's like a... Yeah, it's how they keep everything in sync. Well, there's a thing, there's like a node library. Um, I think it's FS. There were one of them. Uh, there's like glob stream or FS stream. I don't know, one of those things. But basically... It, you can tell it's a monitor folder and it watches those flags for knowing when things are written. And that's essentially how um, things like Gulpstream, or not Gulpstream, but Gulp Watch work. So that you know when a file's written. And then there's a way in the API to say, like, the file's been deleted, the file's been added, the file's been modified. There's a way to know what flag was changed. And there's a temporary flag that's written to the file at the time of that write that says it has just been modified or has just been moved. It has just been created, has just been, you know, whatever. Those flags are essentially what they were reading. So this is an example of a lot of the things that are in this book. (laughs) Basically, you know, they determined that it was too difficult for them to maintain those flags across multiple file systems, which probably makes sense. Let's just give them the credit. It probably does make sense because there's so many Linux file systems that they removed that support. They're like, we're not going to support this anymore. Every feature they probably tried to write had to have parity between Linux and Mac and Windows. So they basically just said, you know, we're only going to support one file system on Linux. Because on Windows, you can generally rely on NTFS. And on Mac, you can either rely on APFS or what's the old one? Um, Starts with an H, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, You can rely on those two file systems. And it's like you have a grand total of two for Mac and a grand total of two for Windows if you consider FAT32. And then you would have like 50 file systems for Linux. So to be fair to them, it kind of makes sense. But it's not 50 file systems. It's like five. Okay. I don't know. Right. And and the surface area of Linux is not just desktops. Yeah. It's all the micro devices and everything. But the point that I'm trying to make is like, if you think about it, they have by an order of magnitude more file systems for a less supported OS, which kind of gets at like the heart of the... Everybody hates Linux. No, but the, but the 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 thing about the thing that they're forgetting is that the thing that makes them money is selling an enterprise product, right? Guess what enterprises use Linux for? Every single one of their servers. Yeah, but it, guess if I what? need to have a mm-hmm. secure server behind my firewall that I need to use with Dropbox, and I want to pay you a bunch of money for it, I can't do that now. Yeah, that's true. But I, I wonder how many people... how many of those clients that you lost because of this decision are going to make up for? Oh well, we didn't want to spend time on that. Well, that's kind of what I was we getting. We spend at. resources on that. That's kind of what I was getting at. So I emailed them and I said. You know, um, I totally understand where you're coming from. I read your blog post. I understand why you remove these file systems. But there's one of them that I think makes a whole lot of sense for you to support, which is EncryptFS, because it's the, yes. it's the standard Ubuntu 
based, whatever, uh, you know, Debian based encrypted file system, I'm assuming. I don't know because I only use Budgie. But, um, you know, there th- that is the encrypted file system that's supported by Budgie, which is Ubuntu, different distro of Ubuntu. And I just think that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a, a short-sighted thing because you're telling me that in order to use your product, I have to remove the security of my computer. Yes, that's dumb. Which then I responded to them and they, they said, well, you know, basically a, res- a canned response of like, well, we determined you can see our blog post. We determined that we did this. I'm like, I, yeah, I understood that. What I'm telling you is now I have no reason to use Dropbox. Yes. And I've been paying $10 a month to Dropbox for the past five years. And you're telling me that because you don't want to spend time supporting these file systems, which totally could be valid. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm a developer. I understand that the amount of support that they have to do to, you know, support that file system is uh, a pain in the ass. Um, but I'm going to probably end up canceling my Dropbox account. Yes, this is. I'm glad that you mentioned this because that is not the only. They they've been in news actually as of I think last week where they have done another anti-consumer policy. The freemium tier used to allow I think up to six devices. Yeah. Guess what they changed it to? One, three. Oh. Three is fair. Well, I guess does that include like my phone? Because you don't really. Dev- it's three activations total. You don't even really sync things off your phone. You kind of just read. Th- I don't use Dropbox. I keep my so. password manager file in I, Dropbox. I got rid of that. I use one password and I start using their cloud. I mean, that might be one way to do it, but still though. If I had to pay the, money to do it. But, but the, yeah. the, the again, there's no technical reason. There's no You can write whatever blog post you want. There's no technical limitation that prevents you from allowing the freemium tier to do six. And the thing is, when they do things like that, they think that they are forcing people to the paid tier. That's not what they're doing. They're doing the exact opposite. They're, yeah, they're forcing, forcing people away from your product. Yeah. Right? So if you want me to go, oh, you know what? This is a really good product. This has so many great features. I love using it. I'm willing to pay for it. You should probably show me all the features. Right? Because yeah. I have a Windows drive. I have a Linux drive. I have another Linux drive. I have a work Mac OS machine. I have a work phone. I have a personal phone. Right? That's six right there. Yeah. Well, my company made me uninstall Dropbox from my work computer. They told me that I wasn't allowed to use it for work-related stuff, and I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> like, I'm using it to manage the other portions of the computer that I use for development, but I didn't even respond to them because I'm just like, well, they're not going to understand. How are they even going to check that? They knew it was on there. I mean, they have, I don't know, they have, they have stuff that tracks things. Right. I'm not worried about that. Well, but the point is, like, they're like, well, I mean, I can understand from their point of view. Like they have, companies have a certain amount of data protection policies where if you have, you know, software or, or databases or anything that is from your clients and you potentially, like I would never have done that, but you potentially put that on Dropbox to share it to somebody. They have Box for a reason. They pay for Box for That's people true. to share files. Yeah. So I can understand their point of view, but. But it's your personal Dropbox. It's for my personal files. Yeah, but your personal files shouldn't be on your work computer, they would say. Like. It's one of those interesting things about, you know, work computers. But it's like, I just think it's one of those things where like, I guess the roundabout way of saying all this is that thinking back to like, uh, you know, what I use my computer, my work computer for development. So my development environment, one of the only reasons why I have Dropbox installed on my work computer is that I sync a configuration for certain editors and certain yes, tools yes. between two computers because I work from home sometimes yes. and I work from there and I 
Before I had a laptop, I would sync like Sublime Text config. Yes, my, my VS config with code sync. Yeah, I don't use it Dropbox. to I don't use it to store company files, but you know, the it's fair, whatever. But the point is like what I'm getting at is like going back to the Dropbox themselves, the decision to remove those file system supports may be totally warranted, but it it t- it makes your product a less useful product to a lot of people. Yes. And so they have less incentive to pay you for the product. Yeah. So, so what would what do you think that uh, DHH would say about that? I would say DHH would have a big problem with like limiting people's limiting people's choice. He's a big proponent of open standards and people having as much choice as possible. He's not quite a, a Richard Stallman like all software should be free and open source type type of type of. I ethos, think he would just. But if it was, he a problem, is a big proponent of having open and available standards that anybody can access. Right? He says that he. He tweeted once about email, how email is a perfect communication medium. It's federated across all platforms. You can access it however you want. You can access it from the command line. You can be SSH into a box and access your personal Gmail account from there if you want to. Right? You can send email anywhere. It's asynchronous if you want. It's not asynchronous if you don't. It's yeah. a perfect, perfect, most flexible email. The problems from email come from people abusing email. The problems from email don't come from email itself. And so he, he's, he's very good at kind of being able to thin slice problems and thin slice away things that are the root cause of a certain kind of problem. It's like Slack doesn't solve your communication problem if your communication problem was not solved by email, right? Yeah. Like the, the, the solution for people answering things asynchronously in email is not to remove the asynchronous part, mm-hmm. right? It's it, you're, you're treating the symptoms at that point. So I am very appreciative of this book because finally someone has come out and challenged and said, look, you guys are all doing this wrong. And I don't care if you think I'm wrong. You guys are doing this wrong, Right. Grilled cheese delivery by drone company. You are doing it wrong. You are an example of bad things. The company who insists that everybody works 80 hours a week. You are doing it wrong. You are going to fail. You should fail. That is so much of what this book is about. And so much of why I relate to it is that they are unapologetic about their viewpoints. They're not trying to be diplomatic about any of this stuff. Overwork is, is bad. You should stand for something. Stop trying to get bought. You're being fake. Like th- these are things that are very simple ideas. And they ring very true for me, and I'm I'm very happy that I've read this book. It's made me feel good. Yeah, a couple of the chapters I haven't read yet. Um, you know, there's the hiring one. Um, hire managers of one. I haven't read that. What that's what's that about? I think that's one where people who are able to manage themselves. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember. There's a lot. The Embrace Drug Dealers one that you, I think you just flipped by. That one is actually a, a concept that was echoed in uh, the first Freakonomics book or might have been the second one. One of the first two books is that uh, drug dealing enterprises are some of the most efficient businesses on the planet Earth. Well, yeah, this is what you were just talking about with like giving people 
access to the whole product versus a portion of the product. Because yes, exactly. if you give them the whole product, they're gonna it literally says right here, uh, emulate drug dealers, make your product so good, so addictive, so can't miss that giving customers a small free taste makes them come back with cash in hand. So I guess the other alternative is give them the entire rock and then they'll come back <laughs> using a drug dealer term. Give yeah. them the entire rock and they'll come back and they'll want more of it because you gave them the entire product. You don't have to, you know, even if it's just for a short amount of time, how are they going to know if they want to use the tool? How are they going to learn how to use your tool? Yeah. Like another one of the really, um, a really good, let's talk about a good product. Um, OmniGraffle is a pretty complicated program. It's one that I don't use. It's a pretty complicated I've program. I've heard good things though. Uh, everybody really that I know that uses it uh, just loves it. Yeah. Loves it to death and helps them. So you use it to create charts and graphs. All the things that he told us not to do. Do not graph things. Do don't, not chart things. Don't do that. Don't write things down. Don't you know, don't make diagrams of systems and all Don't answer things. your email. Wait, what? No. Oh. <laughs> um, not that last one. I use OmniGraffle a lot to draw diagrams of systems or processes or things to, to use to explain to people you know, an entire big complicated system. Um, the thing about OmniGraffle is that it takes quite a long time of using it to understand whether or not it's like, to, to even understand how to use it. I've had the program now for, I think I bought it two years ago. And I just like, I, I had a need for it when I first got it, didn't use it for a little while and then had a need for it again. And I realized that the the, it took about three or four days of using it consistently over two different periods. The first time that I got it, I learned a certain set of things that were the most superficial things. And then the second time I used it for three or four days, I learned the other portion of probably what would be the base use cases of the program. So one of the first things that I learned was just the way that you can take an object in the diagram and then you can copy its style you could just drag a portion of a style like its color to something else. And you could just click that thing, go down to the bottom right. There's this weird looking set of icons you would never really know what they do. One of them is like a color and you just drag that to another element on the dock and it'll be that color. Oh, that's pretty nice. So like just those kind of little tricks. You would never, and you can also... And it's super intuitive, right? You can just figure no, it out. No, it's not intuitive. Oh, it's not. <laughs> so I'm trying to say, like it took me like, I had to read about it or understand. Like there's just these icons in the bottom corner. Like I have no idea what those do, right? And then I was like, how do I make two boxes the same size? And they're like, oh, these things on the bottom. And then I realized, oh, that box is the shape, is the size. You drag that to another object, it becomes the same size. Oh. So you create a box of any size and then click on the other box you want and you just drag it, the, the thing from the bottom right so over. So it, it visually size. represents the different aspects of every... Yeah, it'll pick Stuff, like like the, individually. Yeah, it'll pick. It basically picks the last five, or the, the say you edited five properties of an object, like you made it a certain size, you made it a certain color, you changed the the fill color of it, or you changed the color of the lines to be dotted. So you did something like that. It'll show you the last five things that you did to that object, and you can drag it to another object. Oh, that's nice, right? So that feature in itself, you're like, okay, well, that took me. The first time I made a diagram on it, it took me about a day into making the diagram to realize that those things were there, okay? The other thing was when you make a bunch of, so that time I made a document that was really just to explain something to somebody or document like one basic thing, right? Whatever. Fast forward two years. Then I have to make a document that's used to explain to a client a really complicated process. And I had to print it and I had to make it or I had to make it into a PDF and it had to be printed a certain way on the paper, right? 
So it took me the second time about an hour or two to figure out how to structure the canvas size, the paper type, the way that it looked on the paper, whether or not the pages were infinite, whether they were flexible sized, so that it would actually print onto a tabloid oversized paper for diagram purposes, right? So the point I'm trying to make is that between this one program that has so much power, there was two particular times that I used it and both times it took more than a day or two to figure out something new about the program. So how, where does this, what is the point of this? If I'm trialing OmniGraffle and I'm like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to create a document to see how this program works and see if I like it, how long is it going to take me even to become slightly proficient at the most basic things within that program? Probably more than two, a day. A week. And if you start taking away features, which they do, there is a premium, a pro version and a non-pro version, but they've very specifically divided what are pro features and what are not to where the pro features are generally used by people that are pros that are using all the time. The ability to like export macros of objects and stuff, like some of the more, um, um, what's that, sketch, sketch-like features, sketch the program-like features. Some of those features are in the pro because like if you're using it every single day and all you're ever doing is diagramming, then you might want those pro features. So they've really divided it. But the point I'm trying to make is that you can use the free version of the program, I think for like a month because that's this actual amount of time that you would have to use it to realize if you want to buy it. But guess what? The minute that you use it for a month to make more than one document, you're hooked. It's like you're crap. All in, yeah. You buy it. It's $100. You just yeah. buy it. And then they can charge a higher price for their program. And people will pay for people it. Will people pay will for happily pay. They will yeah. shut up and take my money, me yeah. guy from Futurama. I don't know what guy is, but yeah. Make people fancy your product. Stop trying to trick them into buying your stuff. Yeah. You Dropbox. Upfront your product and be like, be like, this is exactly what it is. This is what it provides for you. We understand that it's a complicated, if it is a complicated program, we understand that it's a complicated program. Use it for a month and then people will buy it because it'll, by then it will become part of their life. Or yes. they'll realize they don't want it. And if people, if you have a bunch of people that sign up, download the program and don't use the trial, even after a month of using it, don't pay for it, maybe you should ask them why they didn't like your product because they probably have something to say about well, they, it. Well, they, like, the flip side to that is like trying to trick them into buying your product is not going to, it doesn't help you yeah, or as a company because you're going to end up cutting corners to try to attract that client. You're going to do some sort of insane pricing where you're like actually losing money or like having to do some kind of coupon to make yourself look cheap. Like there, there's a, a level of sticking up for yourself that you have to do as a company to, to be successful. And that's, that's one of the main themes of the book, I think. Yeah. So it's, it, it's pretty good. It's pretty solid. I'm a big fan. Uh, we'll have a link to the hard copies and the, the Kindles and the whatnot. Also, uh, I was able to pretty sure a couple of my local libraries on Libby had copies of it as well. So if you are the local library type, support your, support your local libraries, folks. Go check that out there. We'll have links in the show notes. Yeah. Greg, do you have... No, you go first. I, I go first? I have two. Because you made me think of one while you were talking about Dropbox. I have a replacement for you for Dropbox. Does it work on Linux? It works on the platform. Well, does it work? On, are you asking me if I, would I use a piece of I software mean, that doesn't work on Linux? Come on, Greg. Have you met me? It does, I guess. So I have an alternative to Dropbox. It's called Resilio Sync. Resilio Sync. Resilio Sync. Now, this product actually used to be branded BitTorrent Sync. Oh. 
It was run by the company BitTorrent that came up with the, Bit, the torrenting protocol. And they were like, oh, the perfect use case for this is syncing stuff across my devices because that's what we do. Does it make each one of your devices appear? So if it's on yes. the network, it becomes the thing that stores the files? Yes. Huh. Or you can, you, can, uh, you can choose. You hmm. can pick and choose. So you can have, uh, have them all be read-write peers. You can have some read-read, some write, some read-only and some read-and-write peers. You can have one central peer. They have a plugin for FreeNAS. Like, it's a very flexible system. As you can imagine, naming something BitTorrent in like, you know, the mid-2010s, probably not such a good idea. So they rebranded, I think, a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago. And the, the software itself is exactly the same. It runs on the, the torrent protocol. So you can have as many peers as you want. You can have one central peer. It works on all platforms. You can pick whatever directories. You can do selective sync. I think selective sync is the, like the one main like pro feature that you would pay for. Mm-hmm. But the, the freemium level, there's no limited number of devices. There's no bandwidth limit. There's no limited number of peers. Hmm. You use it wherever you want, however you want. And if you want something like Selective Sync, or if you want some of the other pro features in the, in the client or, or whatnot, then you pay for it. And it's not a subscription either. I think it's just a one-time payment. It's pretty cool. So that is certainly a good option. I've been kind of test driving it a little bit, dipping the toe in the waters, seeing how it works. Um, I've had a little bit of trouble with the Android client. Of course you do. Or maybe I'm just you not signing just up an, right. You get an iPhone. I mean, it's no, no, yeah, absolutely the, not. The, the phone X probably works fine. No, it probably, it probably doesn't. But I mean, you could test it out. You could let us know what your experience is like, because you've got the iPhone Linux combination. Yeah, I do. Which is like a thing. And the iPad combo. And the iPad combo. And the Windows my only combo. laptop right now. We we're talking about it earlier. My only laptop is an iPad with it's a not, keyboard. It's not a laptop. Um, some would differ. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I have a supercomputer right behind us. Where are you going to run NPM installed on your laptop? Or I, your run it on, I run it on... Do you see the three monitors behind you? No, on your Oh, iPad. he's actually... We were talking about desks. Won't you grade... You're here. Grade what? my desk. What? Grade my desk. No, that's, that's... 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 Basement doing gamer stuff. We talked... We had a whole episode about the desks. You know what your desk setup. is missing? Okay. A, uh, a sim racing wheel. <sighs> it's a perfect setup for it. This is a very common setup that I've seen people use on YouTube. The this 327s. Yeah, but it's three, it's two 4K. To, we were talking about this. Yes, we were talking 4Ks. about this. I don't think my video card, I don't think, could run that many pixels. You probably turn the textures down. I have a, a Titan bit. XP down there. You see that? Yeah. The, the, the racing sim games actually are only moderately demanding. They're not actually super, because there's no explosions or like gunfire or anything like that. It's actually a pretty steady video. So it's usually not too bad. My computer is made by the Galactic Empire. I mean, it kind of looks like it. It totally looks like it. You have a little... It never really thing. occurred to me that it's white and black. It's a stormtrooper. It never occurred to me. What? Look at it. Are you serious? It never no, occurred I'm, to me. I'm, I'm flabbergasted that that didn't it occur It never to you. occurred to me. It even has the Galactic Empire work. logo that I got How with the video it card. not occur to you? You picked know. the you picked the dark side card. You had two Titan XPs. You had the light side and the dark side. Yeah. You picked the dark side one. You Because I didn't in like there. the green light. The, the Jedi one was cooler. I thought you put that one. I thought you put the Sith one in there specifically because you were going for that. No, I just liked the different oh color lights. No, I didn't. Well, welcome to my life. Um, oh my goodness. Okay, so I had two picks. That was my first one. Resilio Sync. We'll have a link. Second one is much, much more interesting, Greg. Yeah. So this weekend, I went to a little thing called Freakonomics Radio Live. Why didn't you invite me to this? Uh, I was surprised with tickets to this. Ooh. Let's just put it that way. 
so Freedom's Radio is the very popular podcast by one Stephen Dubner. They uh, go on the road every once in a while, record live shows in front of live audiences. First time in Los Angeles was this past Saturday. First time ever. Wow. In Los Angeles. What was the topic? Uh, well, their show is a little bit different. They have. No, I know like, the show. Are you just talking for the listeners? No, their their podcast. Oh, it's, the, a, it's a live recording. The live of the show po- is different. No, the live oh. show is a live recording of the podcast. Okay. So they're recording their podcast in front of the audience. No, I know. What was the topic of the podcast that that day? Well, their their uh, podcast has like guests and they interview mm-hmm. guests, and the mm-hmm. the theme is uh, like tell me something I don't know, and so the the guests are challenged to uh, talk about their areas of expertise or their whatever, like they have scientists and things like that on uh, to talk about different things. Anyway, I'm getting to that part. Yeah. First time in Los Angeles, the theater at the Ace Hotel in downtown. Yeah, Ace Hotel is cool for venues. They have a really cool uh, it's concert a pretty, venue. It's a, it's a pretty neat venue. Sounds great. You can there. go upstairs for a drink after. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of very old timey, old time Los Angeles. It's a pretty cool spot. Uh, live band. So the, the guy who actually composes all the music, I think he's actually based in Los Angeles. So the show is actually, their headquarters is in New York. But he does all the music and composes all the like the, the little ditties mm-hmm. in between the the segments and whatnot. But there they had the whole band on stage with them, and so they would play during the breaks and like play the guests on and off and things like that. Uh, they had four guests. Well, let me back up. Stephen Dubner, guy who wrote Freakonomics, him and uh, him and Levitt, uh, the Stevens, as they're referred to. Mm-hmm. Um, he hosts the a show. Squared. He asked. He asked squared. all the questions. Co-host is one Angela Duckworth. The author. Oh, yeah. She wrote that book. She wrote a book called Grit. Yeah. Uh, she's fantastic. She's great. Super smart. Super smart lady. Uh, so they had a total of four guests and they interviewed them. First guest, one Mr. Eric Garcetti. Oh, I like him a lot. Mayor of Los Angeles. Yeah. Very well-spoken individual. Yeah. Very smart guy. He's a very smart guy. They challenged him. They pushed yeah. him a little bit. They, 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 they didn't push him on specific topics, but they... Uh, dug deep on things that I think politicians in our day and age don't focus on enough. Yeah, right? he does a lot of... Um, so for one, he did an entire interview on Freakonomics, I'm pretty sure, a while ago. I think he did, yeah. Yeah, that was really... That was the first time I was like exposed to him. The other time was he sponsors the... Um, there's like a Hack for LA thing, which is like an organization that um, he kind of works with or speaks at often that does... Um, different things like trying to hack the LA like um, electric grid. They'll just like do different things to like try to improve LA. Yes. He talked about uh, one thing where uh, they embrace the using of data to figure out some solutions with the water supply mm-hmm. and the aqueduct and the whole thing with the Owens Valley situation, which was the first time I had ever heard of it. But uh, I came away very impressed with him specifically because he's extremely knowledgeable about a lot mm-hmm. of different things. Uh, and they also challenged him in a couple of ways. So one of the questions I thought was very interesting. They asked him, what was something that you held as a hundred percent unquestionably true and then change your mind later? Yeah. what did he say? I think that he said, um, and it wasn't like a candid response. It was actually a very genuine response that it's easy to pigeonhole people based on their perspective on things hmm. and say that, Oh, if you think this about this topic, then you are automatically X. And I think that he said that as he's been in his job longer and as he's met more Angelinos about different things is that people ultimately have a lot of just the same like fundamental goals, right? You want safety for yourself. You want to be able to take care of your family and your loved ones. And he started to understand that more 
as he met a lot of people with a lot of different, maybe different political beliefs than himself. And yeah, so, LA's a big place. So he started doing that. Well, he he also spat off some, that you mentioned that, spat off a bunch of statistics, statistics. about that as yeah. well. And so again, showing that he is actually very understanding about all these things that are going on. And so I was, I came away very impressed with him specifically. Uh, at the end of his interview, he was challenged to sing a song. Oh man. Even though, and Dubner said this, he, he said that, uh, all of the mayor's handlers specifically told him to not ask him to do this. Yeah. But they did, he did it anyway. And the mayor being very approachable and being, being a uh, good sport, uh, did it with the band playing, playing for him. Um, so that was, that was a pretty, pretty exciting, huh. exciting one. The other guests, there was a seismologist. I forget her name. She, she has like an Institute that's like named after her in Los Angeles, but she was telling us about, Big uh, one. Earth, the big one in earthquakes about how she's oh, one of the things that scares me the most about living in LA. Well, she says it's super, she's super excited for the next one to come. And oh, really? Well, <laughs> as a intellectually curious scientist, she was, oh, yes. Um, okay. But she also said that it's basically random. Yeah. In that the 1.0 magnitude and the seven or 8.0 magnitude look exactly the same right at the beginning. Hmm. So it is literally impossible to predict, let alone prevent earthquakes happening so she was talking about as she came on right after the mayor and so she was talking about some policy things that they did with the mayor in terms of uh, enforcing certain building codes yeah they've done uh, the whole they've been doing a really big retrofit of all the retrofitting a lot of she um, said there are 15,000 the buildings yeah. that need to be retrofitted and and she was able with the help of the mayor to convince the building owners to do it yeah and they want to do it. They're not like fighting. Well, they want to keep their buildings. They want to keep the rent coming. But yeah, right. I mean, it's that's how the sort you of, phase it. That's, that's the, the easy sort of way. thing that yeah, yeah. somebody who owns a building would be like, no, I don't want to spend money on that. Yeah. One, yeah. It's right? easy to if, say that they want to keep their building, but it's hard to convince them that they actually want yeah, to. Yeah. If Dropbox <laughs> owned the building, they'd be like, earthquakes. Like, well, you know, those, those Linux uh, file tags. I don't know. Yeah. I, earthquakes, ZFS. No. No, no, we're not gonna we're just going to ignore ZFS. We're going to ignore the seismometer. It's no, fine. Don't we're not going to do that. So yeah. that was super interesting. Uh, third guest was a, what's his name? He was the executive director of the port of Los Angeles. Oh, now, which is one of the biggest ports it in is, the country. Combined with the port of Long Beach, it is considered, well. I think they're the same thing, aren't they? They are kind of, they're, owned they're by the close same enough to where that the routes essentially are the same route, but they're technically two different ports. Oh, I thought but those be, two together combined, the largest port yeah, in the largest world. Largest port in the world, yeah. And it's not even close. Mm -hmm. Um he came off more as the kind of career politician. He, his answers were clearly rehearsed, practiced. Yeah. He said the cyber. The cybers. He said the cyber. That's cool. Um, the which, cyber threat. Yeah. The cyber's threat. I don't think he said the cybers. <laughs> I think he did say no, the cyber. It. I was making it worse. The cyber is pretty bad. Yeah. Just, just the word cyber. Nobody calls it cyber. Come on. Yeah. Granted, he's an older gentleman, so that might have part of the I mean, so Gar Garcetti's, contrast, like, Garcetti's yeah, like 50 years old, too. This is what I'm saying. In contrast to, to the mayor, it, it's pretty stark. So he was not particularly interesting. He didn't crack any jokes or anything like that, so it was not fun. Uh, and then the last guest was a scientist at JPL who Ooh. works on the Planetary Protection yeah. Division. Now, if I were to ask you, what do you think? scientist does what would you, he what looks would you for asteroids she she sorry looks for asteroids no oh that's planetary defense wow 
Planetary, Space Force, man. Planetary Protection yeah. is about the introduction and contamination of microbes. Oh, I've heard about this person. Other yeah, yeah. planets and our own planet. Yeah, there's and, a there's an ambassador. Is that her? Because I've heard about this person. They were interviewing for this person a while ago. Uh, her name is Dr. Stricker. Maybe. Does that uh, sound familiar at all? No, but they were in, they were essentially interviewing for a position like this at the federal level. And everybody's like, what do you need this person for? Like, yes, what is that was, this job? that's actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, part of the part of the segments are that they have a, a guy who quote unquote live fact checks. And sometimes he comes up with like funny facts and his name is Mark. And he said that uh, he couldn't find anything really to fact check because it was all over his head, but he did find the actual job application for that job. And it only has three requirements. Anyway, uh, Free Now with Radio Live. Fantastic show, amazing show, live recording. He did this hand signal where you want people to clap, you go like this. Yeah, it's weird when you see live stuff and then you the realize stage. that it's like a it's like a thing. It is funny. There were there were two things that were made it very live. At the beginning, before anybody came out, uh, one of the producers had us uh, laugh. Yeah, so we had to do sure a laugh recording. Laugh track. We had to do 20 seconds of what's called room noise, which everybody stays quiet. Yeah, so they use that to probably cancel out the noise in between the tracks. Super pro level stuff. Are you uh, learning? Were you like totally nerding out when he's like, wait, I'm recording the... A little bit, yeah. And then the second part is at the end, when they were done, they had to uh, do retakes. Mm, yeah. So any senses that they flubbed or anything, they would re-speak them into the microphones. Yeah. And that was kind of fun. I've seen um, Love It or Leave It Live, and he he kind of just, he's really good and he just wings it. But usually when he's reading like the... Only really, he doesn't. He doesn't cut things out when they're just like talking. But he will reread like the titles of sections of the show if they're not right, or the um the titles of like questions. Yeah, so things like that. They did all the retakes. Uh, all in all, from beginning to end, it was a two and a half hour show. Yeah, I don't know how long their episodes are, but I'm very interested to see how long. That I think episode it's like is. an hour thirty. Because there's no way that they can cut down to a normal podcast link without actually cutting out content mm. without cutting out like specific questions. All right. I don't know if, uh, our mayor's, uh, singing performance is going to make the cut. Well, when is it, when is it air? Uh, the episodes come out on Wednesdays. Oh. So that was sa- this past Saturday night should, should be out this Wednesday. They haven't had an episode, I think in two weeks. So it should be this Wednesday. You'll hear me laughing. Of course I will. At some point on that episode, yeah. but, uh, I'll have a link. I don't. I'll have a link to their podcast. I don't think the episode won't be up yet by the time our episode is. But we turn our episodes around faster than they do. Well, just saying. You know, I'm very impressed with myself by doing that. <laughs> they have literally an entire staff of people. Yeah, it takes them four days. It takes me what four hours? Maybe uh, get on, get on my level. Yeah, totally. Get on my level, Dubner. Where you at? Uh, What's I'm, going on? I feel like you're picking a fight. I'm picking a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you've read that book and internalized it. Public function. What's up? Yeah. That's where we're at. Yeah. It's our brand. Mm-hmm. Anyway, those are my picks. Greg, do you have a pick for us? Um, kind of on a similar similar subject to Hack for LA. I've been doing a lot of looking on Built for LA. Built in LA? Built in LA. Which is a pretty cool site that talks about, you know, they have um, reviews of a lot of startups in LA and they kind of talk about their culture, their offices. They have like a very, you know, it's and they also have job listings, but it's not like a only job listing website they have like kind of a whole nother side to it and i found them to be a pretty pretty cool website just to see what kind of companies are in los angeles and what they're doing and 
where the best places to work are and what kind of cultures they have. And they got a lot of content there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The Belton LA side, they are very good about uh, learning a lot about the internals of the company. Yeah. All right. Like, don't just like send me a picture of your CEO, the headshot or whatever, and send me some platitudes. Like, tell me what exactly is going on. Like, are people allowed to bring dogs to the office? Like, what do you serve people for lunch? Do you serve people for lunch? What makes you different from these other, like in all these kinds of things. And it's a very good resource for learning about, uh, I think particularly startups, but they cover a lot of companies. They cover yeah. big, small, all kinds of stuff. Um, and like you said, their main purpose is not just to be another job board. Um, I think that they go deeper than that. And I think that by that token, they serve job hunters better because yeah. you actually learn a lot more information there than you would say like a LinkedIn or Indeed or something like that. So I agree with you. I think it's a fantastic resource. They do a great job. Um, yeah. Really, really giving you a good idea of the tech community in Los Angeles, which people outside of Los Angeles probably don't realize how big and how diverse that company that community is so it's pretty big i i tried to sign up for jsla this week and next no it's on the 30th and it was sold out already so oh man yeah the the, the tech scene here is really starting to ramp up it's pretty cool it is yes uh, i've heard it referred to as silicon beach yeah which uh, i don't know if i like that but well i can't wait till silicon beach gets too full and rents get too high and they start moving some of these businesses more oh east. wait oh wait what you don't think it's already too high I think that, you know, well, I mean, there's a lot of businesses that are moving towards Culver City and then there's a few popping up in Pasadena downtown, like where you work. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's a lot, I mean, the whole movie industry is in the East North, you know, the Northeast in uh studio city. Um, but there's the not valley. a lot of, it's not really the Valley. I mean, kind of the Valley. It's really not. Cause it's literally right on the other side of the one one I mean, Ar <laughs> like, Ari Gold called yeah. it the Valley. Therefore it is the Valley. Where would Ari Gold? Where would Ari Gold's office would probably would have been in Hollywood? The Hollywood is like his office was. I'm pretty sure his office like was by in Capitol Hollywood. Records, like by that area. Like I think by so. Hollywood Either Island? like between Hollywood, like between Hollywood and West Hollywood. Okay, well, to get from that area to Disney, just a random studio, is like a 20 minute drive at the 101. So it's really not that far away. And 20 minutes in LA is not that far. Is, is Everything not, should be close. 20 minutes. Everything oh, oh. everything distance-wise in LA should be about 30 minutes. Is yeah. about 30. You should be able Max. to distance-wise get anywhere in Los Angeles in 30 minutes. That's not true. You can't do it's it. It's not true at all. Yeah. It's not true. So I don't know. I mean, I think Santa Monica's starting to get a little bit too overpopulated with businesses. I think that uh, it's a really nice place to work. I mean, if you could be by the beach and work, I mean, that's perfect situation, but you know, there's some of us that live on the east side and, you know, don't want to drive as far. So well, please, I, please yeah. built in LA, convince people to make offices in Pasadena and, and Glendale and areas that are. Yes. A lot, of, a lot of the economy around places like Pasadena and Glendale are around JPL. So, I mean, that's, that's, a, yeah. that sounds like a perfect place to have technology to be. I don't know about you guys. I just thought of a, a podcast um, idea. We should do one of the JPL tours. They, they have, have tours? Them. What? Yeah, like every every weekend they they have What? A, yeah, you can schedule a time to go do a tour. I've just never done it. It's like a whole thing. We're totally going to do this. We should do it and then come back and talk about it. We should absolutely do this. That would be amazing. I mean, besides programming, one of my other favorite things in life, uh, besides gaming, programming, my third favorite thing in life is space. Well, your game is in space. So I, mean, I, I literally play Destiny, which is a... Um, it's literally in space. It's a space opera with lasers. So... Yeah, it's literally in space. So yes, JPL being being nearby is pretty sweet. Yeah, it's a pretty and I cool. haven't I haven't been there, so I want to go there. Um, we should totally go. 
Yeah, we should do that. We should absolutely go. Maybe we can find someone that we can have on the show at JPL. How dope would that be? Maybe. That would be amazing. So we'll check that out. We should out. try to figure that out in the next like three episodes. So we should be talking after this about... Yes. Mental note, recording note to talk about this after. Show note. Show note. Yes. Yeah. Greg, if people want to come with us to JPL when we go there, how should they get in touch with you to let you know that they want to go with us to JPL? Um, you can at me on this thing called Twitter that um, exists on the internet. Yes, Twitter is a thing. Greg, you are at... <laughs> Gregorski. Gregorski on Twitter. I am at Al Park, A.L. Park. Picture me smiling. The show is at a public function. (laughs) Show is at a public function. We tweet there every Tuesday morning at some point, uh, Pacific Standard Time, usually early in the morning, when a new episode goes up. So keep track of us there. You can also tweet at us at the show. I run that account. I will respond to you personally. I respond to everybody who tweets at us personally. Albert does all the editing, all the social outreach, all I do a lot of the work. If anybody needs a podcast um, showrunner. Oh, y'all can't afford me. I'm sorry. Oh, y'all really he had his podcast in y'all four are, hours. I mean, Dubner, give me a call. Freaking Hours Radio. You guys need some better editor. Oh, wow. Now you you're guys picking a fight. You're for sure picking, picking a fight those now. fights. Picking yeah. those fights. DHH told me to pick a fight. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we do work very hard on the show to bring you guys all of this flame emoji content every single week. If you'd like to hear more, tune in. We're on the web, publicfunction.show. This is episode 23, so it's backslash zero, two, three. Show notes, episode, beautiful new show art. Our smiling faces are located there. You can also get in touch with us there, publicfunction.show backslash contact. I want to hear from our listeners. I have a question that I want you guys to answer. If we were to expand our reach into different ways of getting in touch with you guys, how would you guys want us to do that? Do we like Slack? Do we want to do a Slack room? Do we want to do like a subreddit? I hear, I hear Discord is a thing amongst the email. Youths. Email. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just have a mailing list? Yes. A public function mailing list? That's oh, what man. you all want, right? That would be amazing. Asynchronous. Yeah. Oh man. Asynchronous community. But let yep. us know. Let us know. Hit us up on uh, hit us up uh, on the contact page. Tweet at Greg. Let him know that you want him on your email totally. email mailing list. Yeah. And we will be back. Greg, see you next week. Yeah. I mean, I say that every time, but yes, I do see waveform. You said you saw waveform last time. I I did, and then things happened. Mm. We, did you we ever did, figure out what that was? I don't know. I think I did see that uh, the software we're using was trying to do some sort of update. Was trying to download a new package. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but it could have. It might have. There's a good possibility. I'm not really sure. Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Why did you kill the children? I think the scourge of people who use computers these days from all operating systems is... Um, Don't put it on the table. Uh, let's see. How, how do we say uh, updates without consent? Um, consent assault? Or not consent, update assault? I mean, that could be a thing. I mean, we that's can, kind of a thing, right? We could make it a thing. Like, hey, Windows, 
I would like to just restart my computer, please. Can you not hijack my stuff? Oh, not tell yeah, me? it does that all the time. Hey, Mac OS, I would l- also like to restart my computer, please. Can you not hijack my computer? And Macs don't update? do it. They ask yeah, you. Yeah, they do. No, they don't. They ask you. They never update unless you do it. They ask you, but they don't tell you it's going to take an hour to, to update everything. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe, but they, they, you have to hit the update button. It's uninformed consent. No, it's conformed. You hit the update button. It's uninformed consent, right? When a doctor tells you mm. that they have to, re- have to do surgery to save your life, they have to tell you all of the ins and outs about said surgery and why they have to make the case to you. Otherwise, if they don't and you say, yes, please give me the surgery, that's called uninformed consent. It means that the patient has not fully been apprised of their options and given all the information to weigh their decision. Same thing goes with updates. Windows. Tell I don't me know. exactly how long it's going to take. I don't know if Windows updates are life-threatening, but you know. Well, maybe. you know what? Some people have mission-critical systems. Yeah, maybe they should not enable auto-update. Or don't use Windows for mission-critical systems. <laughs> mission-critical <laughs> systems that need the security patches. You can run it on Linux and then do security only or not. Or mm-hmm. If you're security-sensitive... I mean, that's a good point. Mac OS has gotten worse. And I know this because I recently had to go through this on this computer. People use Mac OS for servers? Sometimes. To do what? Build iOS apps. Isn't that a thing? I feel like I've seen server racks full of little Mac minis. It's like a little, yeah, uh, yeah. little matrix human farm of little, little Mac minis. Little trays. They're all plugged in to the matrix. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Maybe. 